Church, good to see you again. So great, two weeks in a row in person. It feels awesome, right? And last week, if you were here, uh, we started a new series talking about the church. And I started off the sermon by telling you this is a football. And I was, I was telling you that because in order to understand what we're supposed to be and do as a church, we need to focus on the basics. Just like the football coach who walks in and tells his team, this is a football, getting back to the basics. And so last week we started by looking at the Bible, at God's word. And, and since the church is God's church, we said the Bible as God's word gets ultimate say in determining what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do. And today I wanna start again in a direction that may seem a little odd. I'm gonna ask you a question, okay? And just like with footballs last week, it might seem random and disconnected, but it's not, I promise you. I'll I'll show you later how it connects back. Here's the question. What makes a chair a chair? Four legs, okay. Anything else? A seat, okay. A seat with four legs? I mean, like on one level, we're all sitting in chairs. We all instinctively know what a chair is, but have you ever really stopped to think about what makes a chair a chair? I'm gonna put some pictures on the screen and I want you to tell me whether each one is a chair. Is that a chair? If you think that's a chair, you can just put your hands up in the air. Okay, so that's a chair, we're all agreed. How about this one? No one thinks that's a chair, that's good. This is a cactus, not a chair. All right, number three. Is that a chair? Oh, but notice, no legs. Oh, now, now we're getting complicated. How about the next one? Is that a chair? No one thinks this is a chair, okay? But, but we said a chair is something with four legs that you sit on. That was something you sit on that has four legs, right? Like, how about this one? This one? Yeah, we're, this is a chair, a three-leg chair. Okay. This one? Is a stool a chair? Yes. Okay. So we're saying this is a chair. All right. So then here's, here's the question. Why does it matter what, what a chair is? Why does it matter what makes a chair a chair? Why are we talking about this? Well, there are two really important things I want you to see from this discussion. First, whether or not something is a chair really depends on whose definition you're using, right? So if someone says a chair is something with four legs that you sit on, then by that definition, the couch and the stool are both chairs. But if you go with the Oxford English Dictionary's definition, that a chair is a separate seat for one person, typically with a back and four legs, the stool can still count as a chair, but the couch no longer does because the couch is something different than the chair. Or if someone said that having a back is necessary for it to be a chair, then all of a sudden the stool no longer counts as a chair. What definition you use for a chair helps determine whether or not something is a chair. Okay, so that's the first really important thing for us to see. The second thing I want us to see, there's a core internal thing that makes a chair a chair. And then there are external appearances that usually go with chairs, but don't always go with chairs. And you can still have a chair without those external appearances. So, and if you understand that difference, you have a lot of flexibility to play around with your design for a chair, but if you don't understand that difference, you could have something that looks a lot like a chair but isn't. So for example, we said chairs usually have four legs, but remember this one, this guy doesn't have 
any legs. The, the, it has this curvy thing under the seat. And the creator of this chair had the freedom to do that because the creator understood, although most chairs have four legs, the thing that makes a chair a chair is that you can sit on it, not whether or not it has legs. And so they were able to play around with the external appearance, even though they, they changed it because they kept the core the same. But on the flip side, if you don't understand the difference between the core thing that makes the chair a chair versus the external appearances, you can build something that has all the external appearances that normally go with a chair, but isn't a chair. So for example, imagine that you have this, but you have a little spike built into the seat. Is that a chair? It's a, it's a bad design, yeah. You, you could maybe call that a chair. I mean, it has all the ingredients. It has four legs, it has a seat for one person, it has a back, but then it has a spike built into the seat. It's not really a chair because the thing that makes a chair a chair is that you can sit on it. And if you try to sit on this thing, it's going to impale you. It's dangerous, right? So when you understand the core definition of a chair, you have freedom to play around with the external appearances of it. But if you don't understand that difference, you can build something that looks a whole lot like a chair, but is actually dangerous. And why are these two observations about chairs so important? because they're also true about churches. Whether or not something is a church depends on whose definition you go by. Lots of people out there have different definitions about what makes a church a church. And as we start talking about the church, we have to ask, how do we know which definition is right? And that's why we started last week by looking at the Bible, at God's word, because God's word has the ultimate say in what makes a church a church. As a church, we're called to let God shape our definition of what a church is through his word. God's word has the ultimate say in God's church. That's why throughout this series, as we talk about what the church is and what it's supposed to be, we're always coming back to God's word to see what he says so that God's word has the ultimate say, not just human wisdom or our feelings and desires. And secondly, in the church, there's a core reality that makes a church a church. And there are external adornments that usually go with that core reality. But if you understand the core reality, you have a lot of flexibility in how you set up and arrange those external adornments. But if you don't understand that core reality, you can have something that looks a lot on the outside like what we would consider a typical church but that actually totally misses out on what it means to be a church. And when that happens, that so-called church will do the equivalent in spiritual harm to those who attend it, as the spike chair will do in physical harm to those who sit on it. So today we're gonna start trying to answer this question, what is the church? And we're gonna do that by looking at a passage, which Manny just read for us, that discusses this question. We'll see a bit of what God has to say about what the church is. And we'll see that if we can separate out the core realities of the church from the external adornments that usually accompany the church, we'll see if we can start to sort of figure out what falls into which category. Does that sound good? Cool. And what we'll see today is the church is a people for God's own possession. The church is a people for God's own possession. And we'll see that the church is built on Christ, that church is the people, and that church is made for mission. But before we look at the passage, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your church. We thank you for what a blessing it is to be able to gather and worship you together today and look at your word to have the freedom to do that. We pray that as we look at your word today, you would be speaking to us and helping us to know you, helping us to see more clearly who you call us to be as a church and how you call us to live as a church and that we'd be transformed to live lives that honor you. And in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 today, starting in verse 4. And let me just preface our discussion of the passage by saying, I realize the word church doesn't actually appear in today's passage at all. But if you look at what Peter is discussing here, he's clearly talking about the church. And the things he says about the church in this passage line up with other passages in the New Testament that talk about the church. And we're going to look at this passage specifically because Peter talks about a whole bunch of realities about the church in a very short space. So it just gives us a a lot of clarity to help us see what the church is supposed to be and do in this one passage. And the first thing that we're going to see in this passage that's essential for us to see about the church is that the church is built on Christ. If you look at verse four, he starts out this passage, as you come to him. This him is Jesus. And Peter's saying in these verses, Jesus is the foundation on which the church is built. Jesus is the foundation on which the church is built. You can see it here in the passage. In verse four, Peter talks about a living stone who is chosen and precious in God's sight. And then if you jump down to verse six, it stands in scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. That same language, chosen and precious about this stone. But now this stone is the cornerstone of the spiritual house that God is building. Peter is saying Jesus is the cornerstone for the spiritual house that God is building, which may not mean much to us. But let me give you a little history. Back in the day, before they had concrete foundations for houses, they would build the foundation out of stones. And the cornerstone was a massive stone whose angles were all measured to perfectly right angles. They put it in the corner of the foundation. That's where its name came from, the cornerstone. And all the measurements for the house would be taken based on this one perfectly measured stone. So they would extend out the line this way, they would extend out the line that way, and they would make sure that everything lined up perfectly with that one stone. That one stone set all the angles and measurements for the entire house. It was foundational and essential for building the house and making sure that it was properly aligned. And due to the size of the cornerstone and the amount of work that went in to make sure all the measurements were perfect, cornerstones were expensive. They were valuable. They were precious. And Peter, in this passage, he's saying God is building a spiritual house. That's the church. And Jesus is the cornerstone of this house. Everything that this house is and will be is built on the foundation of Jesus. Everything the church is and will be is built on the foundation of Jesus. The alignment and measures of the house are measured and aligned against Jesus. Jesus is foundational for the church. And if you go throughout the passage, Peter says some pretty crazy and incredible things about the identity of Christians. We're going to look at some of them in just a minute. But if you look closely, you'll see that all of these incredible things are true of Christians 
because they're first true of Jesus. The fact that the church is built on Christ is exactly what allows all these other realities to be true of Christians. So in verse five, Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. That's pretty cool, right? Like we get to be God's spiritual house as Christians. But why do Christians get to be stones in God's spiritual house? It's because Jesus is the living stone who's also the cornerstone that the house is being built on top of. And as Christians, we get to be part of the house that God is building because we're connected to Jesus and the house is built around him. We're being made like him. It's through our connection with Jesus that we get to be living stones in the house that God is building. Or in verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How are those things true of Christians? How do Christians go from being not a people to being God's people? How do Christians go from you had not received mercy to now you have received mercy? It's through the death of Jesus on the cross. The Bible says because of our sin, which is our rebellion against God, we deserve God's wrath and God's judgment. And on the cross, Jesus saved us from that wrath and judgment by taking them upon himself in our place. Because of what Jesus did, if we trust in him, we can stand before God and not have to bear the punishment that we deserve. That's what mercy means, not having to face the punishment that we deserve. And all we have to do to receive that mercy is believe that Jesus died for us, turn from our rebellion against God and commit to follow him with our lives. That's what it means to become a Christian, to trust in Jesus in this way. We received mercy because Jesus died in our place on the cross. And we're God's people for the same reason, because Jesus died in our place on the cross. Jesus died so that we who were not a people can now be the people of God. We no longer have to be strangers to God or to one another. We no longer have to be out on our own. We're connected to Jesus and through him, we're connected to God and to one another. Because of the death of Jesus, everyone who believes in him, every Christian is part of the people of God, part of the church. And there are even more incredible things this passage says are true of us as Christians. We're going to look at some more of them in just a minute. But all of these things are true of us because they're true of Jesus and we are connected to him. The church is built on Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of the house that God is building. Jesus is the source of all the spiritual blessings that we receive as Christians. And this is really, really important for our understanding of the church as we start talking about what the church is, because what this means is if something has all the external appearances of a church, but it's not built on Jesus, it's not a church. It's possible to have a group of people who meet up every single Sunday in a building with a steeple, who sing songs together, pray prayers together, and talk about God together, and for that not to be a church. It happens any time a group of people try to form a religious community that's not built on the foundation of Jesus. It happens when we stop teaching the Bible and replace it with the speaker's thoughts on life. It happens when we stop talking about sin and the need for repentance and forgiveness through the death of Jesus and just start talking about what makes us feel good. You know, I was talking recently with a pastor from the States 
And this pastor said he heard about someone in his local community who was looking for a church that affirmed certain lifestyles that the Bible calls sinful and encouraged people to pursue those and had contemporary music, you know, like guitars instead of organs and songs written this century. And the pastor said there were no churches in his area who had that combination. Now, why is that? It's because the churches that affirm this specific sinful lifestyle have abandoned the Bible's clear teaching on the life God calls us to live. They've stopped teaching what the Bible says about Jesus, right? It's really hard to talk about sin and the sacrifice Jesus made for our sin when you're not willing to call sin, sin, and you're instead affirming and encouraging people in their pursuit of sinful lifestyles. But when you remove the foundation of Jesus and you're still trying to be a church, what do you have left? Just the external appearances, right? And so these so-called churches that abandoned the foundation of Jesus feel that to, to remain a church, they just have to keep holding their services in the exact same way that they did 50 or 100 years ago because that's all they have left of what it means to be a church. They have no freedom to adapt that because they, they've confused the core thing of what a church is with the external appearances of what a church is. But on the flip side, the, the churches that understand we need Jesus as the foundation have a lot of freedom to adapt the musical styles that we use because we realize the style of music we sing when we're together is not the core reality of what it means to be a church. We could sing old school gospel music. We can sing country Western. We can sing rock and roll. We can sing hip hop. That doesn't determine whether or not we are a church. We have you know, certain core things, yes, the Bible calls us to do as we gather, like pray and sing and, and preach. We'll look at these things in the coming weeks. But when we understand that the core of the church is the fact that it's built on the foundation of Jesus, that gives us a certain level of freedom in how we do these things that we would never have if we confuse the core of what it means to be the church with the external appearances. So when your church is, is built on, on Jesus, it gives you freedom. It gives you joy. And that's, that's the first distinctive I want us to see here in today's passage, that the church is built on Jesus. The second thing I want us to see in this passage is that the church is the people. Now I realize this is very countercultural for us, right? Um, many people think the church is a building, I was once in a meeting with a group of pastors and we were all going around introducing ourselves, saying our names and the church where we work. And this one pastor said his name and his church had just started a building project. And so he said, I am the pastor of a hole in the ground, which reveals this, this thought process that, that the church is the building. Some people realize the church isn't the building, but, but we think of church as an event on Sunday morning. And I'm guessing on some level, we're all guilty of this one, right? When you wake your kids up on Sunday morning, what do you say to them? We have to go to church, right? But what are, you, what are we saying when we say that? We're saying church is an event that we attend, right? And I, I do this too. But if, if church is the people, then an event on Sunday morning is not truly the church. It's a church service, but the church is the people, not the event itself. And I realize on a week-to-week -week basis, it's probably not a huge deal if we, if we say I'm going to church, right? 
But this does have some real life implications, right? When we, when we start to think of church as an event rather than the people, we can say things like, I'm doing church online today while we're sitting in the living room by ourselves in front of a computer. And if church is the people, then when you do that, by definition, what you're doing is not church because it has some of the external appearances of what we think of as church, but it's missing the people who are a core part of the reality of what it means to be the church. And now just to clarify, I realize that during social distancing, that might be the closest thing we have, right? And I'm not saying that it's inherently bad to watch videos of church services online. That, that can be a very spiritually beneficial thing at certain times. But what I'm pointing out is that's not true church. And if you try to substitute true church with online church by yourself long-term, it's going to do you spiritual harm because the church is the people and online church is missing part of that core reality of what it means to be the church. One more way before we jump in and show you exactly where this comes from in the passage, that, that church as the people is really countercultural. Because if the church is the people, plural, that means that none of us can live the Christian life properly on our own. None of us can live the Christian life properly on our own. You know, our culture has this widespread narrative of individualism that's seeped into the thinking of many Christians. You know, one, one myth that's made its way from culture into the thoughts of many people in the church is that Christianity is about me and God. You know, the other people around there, they're nice, they're cool, it's good to have friends, but really at the end of the day, it's about me and God. And if you look at what Peter's saying in this passage, which I'll show you in just a second, that is so far from the truth. A more accurate way to say it is that Christianity is about us and God. Yes, each of us individually needs to, to trust in Jesus for ourselves and have faith to become Christians, but God doesn't save us so we can just have an individual relationship with him. He saves us to be part of his people, part of a community, the church. And I realize I've explained a lot about this point without actually showing it to you in the text yet. So let me show you where it is in this passage. Look at verse nine with me. Peter lists out four things that are true of us as the church. He says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about these images. First, all four of these things are things that are said about Israel in the Old Testament. So this whole passage actually is Peter taking Old Testament references from the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Psalms and Isaiah and Hosea all these things that are said about the nation of Israel and saying, guess what? Now they're true of the church, which is incredible, right? Because Peter's essentially saying the church is now the heirs to all the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament. But think about it. A building can't inherit promises. An event can't inherit promises. Only a people can inherit promises. The church is the people of God, just like Israel was a people in the Old Testament. Second, think about these four specific images in verse nine. He says that we are a chosen race. You can't be a race on your own. You can be a member of a race, but you can't be a race on your own. He says we are a royal priesthood. 
You can't be a priesthood on your own. Alone, you're just a priest. He says, we are a holy nation. You can't be a nation on your own. Alone, you're just a citizen. And then he says, we are a people for God's own possession. Again, alone, you're only a person, not a people. Each of these images requires a group of people in order to become a reality. Each of these images describes a group of people who live in solidarity with one another and are united around a common purpose and a common goal. And Peter is saying in the same way, the church is a group of people who live in solidarity with one another and pursue a common purpose and a common goal. And if these images aren't enough to convince you that the church is the people and that this reality calls for us to live lives closely connected with other Christians, I want to invite you to look at verse five as well. It says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Think about that image, a spiritual house. Peter says, like living stones, we're being built together into a spiritual house for God. Now, when you build a house out of stones, the stones in the house cannot stay up on their own. Every stone is supported and held in place by the stones below it and around it. And all those stones are supported and held in place by the foundation. And every stone supports and holds in place the stones above it and around it. Every stone needs all the other stones around it to function properly. If you take a stone that's supposed to go right here in the wall and you just try to set it there without all the other stones around it being in place, what's gonna happen? It's gonna fall and hit the ground because it needs the other stones around it in place in order to do its job as a stone properly. In the same way, each individual member of the church needs all the other members of the church around them in order to fulfill our proper role as Christians. You know, I'm about to say something. It's going to sound totally crazy to you, but it's absolutely true. You ready for this? For most of the history of the church, do you know what church is considered to be the worst sin that someone could commit? This is going to shock you. You ready for it? Not coming to church service on Sunday morning. Now, we're probably laughing at that because that sounds ridiculous to us. We're like, what's the big deal? I miss church service all the time, right? But that attitude is actually a symptom of the individualism of our culture shaping our thinking. See, for most of church history, church is understood. We need each other. We don't just go to church services on Sunday morning to connect with God. We also go to connect with one another, to be the church together because the church is the people and the service is the time of the week when all the people assemble together in one place at one time. And if you're not coming and being involved in the life of the church and using your gifts and your presence to serve and encourage and bless others in the church, you're sinning against your church. And I know you're probably thinking like, okay, I can see how that could be an issue, but surely that's not the worst sin possible, right? If you had a choice between like cheating on your spouse versus not going to church service on Sunday, like surely cheating on your spouse has to be worse than that, right? But think about this, going and interacting with the church family not only allows you to, to bless and serve and encourage them, 
it also allows them to bless and serve and encourage you, to remind you of the lifestyle that God calls you to live, to hold you accountable to living in obedience to God in all of life. So on one level, yeah, it's probably worse to cheat on your spouse than to not come to the church service on Sunday, right? But on another level, if you are cheating on your spouse, it's far easier to hide that from everyone else in the church community if you just stop showing up on Sunday mornings. By not showing up on Sunday mornings, they thought, you know, you could be involved in all sorts of ungodly living and no one else in the church would have any way of knowing about it or of pointing you back towards the life that God calls us to live as his people. As Christians, we need one another in order to live the Christian life properly because the church is the people, not just a group of individuals, but a a community of people. So what does that mean for us today? It means we need deep relationships with one another in the church. Like if you say that you're a Christian, but you don't have other people in the church who know your struggles and who can support you in the midst of your struggles, you're not living the Christian life properly. If you say you're a Christian and you're not getting to know other people in the church, including their struggles, so that you can support them in their tough times, you're not living the Christian life properly. Church isn't just about coming to learn cool information about God. It's about being a community of people built on the foundation of Jesus. We need one another like stones in a house need the other stones around them to do their job properly. We cannot live the Christian life properly unless we're plugged in and connected to the church community around us because the church is the people. So we've seen so far, the church is built on the foundation of Jesus. The church is the people. There's one more reality about the church that we need to see in this passage. And that is that the church is made for mission. See, God doesn't just save us and form us as a church so that we can gather together and be a really cool or really lame club, depending on who you ask, whether it's really cool or really lame. God has a bigger goal than that in saving us. He wants us to be his messengers, to share the good news of Jesus with an unbelieving world. God made the church for mission. God saves us and forms us into the church so that we can go out on mission and share the good news of Jesus with those who don't yet know him. And we see two ways in this passage that we're called to live on mission. We'll look at the second one first. And the first thing we'll see in verses 11 and 12 is that we live on mission by living self-controlled and honorable lives. Now, for Christians, Peter has already told us there are spiritual realities that are true of us that should make this type of living natural to us, right? In verse nine, he said, we are a holy nation and we are a royal priesthood. We've, we've been set apart to live differently for God. And if you look back at Galatians chapter five, Paul tells us there that, that the fruit of the spirit includes self-control. God sends his spirit into our lives to help us live this type of lifestyle. But if you're anything like me, this type of lifestyle can often be difficult and feel unnatural, right? Because the world's narrative is so different than God's narrative. What does the world say? It says, get it now. Patience is for losers. So we get stressed because the little guy at the crosswalk is red and we're like, I just don't want to wait. 
I lack the self-control to stand there for 20 seconds before I can cross the street because he turns green. The world tells us, do what feels good. Don't worry about self-control. Justine and I were watching a TV show this week, and there was this character. He slept with a woman who wasn't his wife, and then he felt really bad about it afterwards. So he told his friends what he had done, and you know what his friends said? As long as it felt good, that's all that matters. That's the world's message. As long as it feels good, that's all that matters. And Peter is saying, if you're a Christian, the way you live matters. It's not just about what feels good. God calls us to live holy lives, to live honorable lives, lives set apart for him, lives in obedience to his word, lives marked by self-control. And if we're ignoring God's commands, just trying to do what feels good, we are not living the Christian life properly. And Peter says the way we live our lives is vital for mission. He says in verse 12, that the world will accuse us and seek to slander us for our faith. When people find out, I mean, he's, he's assuming people know about our faith in the first place, which is assuming that we're talking about it with the people around us on some level. But he says, when they find out that we're Christians, what's gonna happen? They're going to oppose us and try to catch us doing stuff wrong so that they can discredit us. So, you know, he calls himself a Christian, but do you see what he's doing with the, the company credit card? how he's buying stuff for himself, it's not okay. If that's what Christians do, I don't want any part of that. But Peter says on the flip side, if we are living godly and upright lives, then when our accusers try to find things that they can accuse us of, they're gonna see our good deeds and glorify God. The way we live our lives is vital to us living on mission the way that God calls us to. It's vital to us being the church that God calls us to be. When we live lives of obedience to God, lives that are set apart from the world around us, it shows off the beauty of God to the watching world and makes them want to praise God as well. So our obedience leads others to want to follow Jesus. So that's the first place in this passage we see that the church is created for and called to mission. The second place we see it is in verse nine. We looked earlier at what he says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But why did God do all these things? Why did he make all these amazing realities true of us? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God makes all these realities true of us so that we can go tell others about him. Peter's saying if we, if we want to live lives on mission the way that God calls us to, it's not enough just to live a morally good lifestyle. A morally good lifestyle is not the gospel. In order to be saved, people have to hear the good news about Jesus and what he did to rescue us from our sin. He says we're called to proclaim his excellencies. This word proclaim, it literally means to publish abroad, to make it known. In this context, it means going to people who don't yet know Jesus and telling them how awesome he is. And notice, like I just said, this, this follows the list of these four amazing realities that are true of us in Jesus. And we talked a few minutes ago about how all those realities are community realities, not individual realities, right? You can't be these things by yourself. And if all these things are communal realities, and this, this call to mission flows out of them, what does that mean about the call to mission? 
It's a communal call. You know, it's great to share your faith with others one-on-one. If you get the opportunity to do that, do it. But God has designed the church in such a way that we depend on and support one another, not just in living the Christian life, but in living on mission for him. Our witness and testimony to the world around us is clearest when we're working together to tell others about him. We need each other as Christians. We need the community around us. We need this depth of relationship to help us live our lives on mission. See, people come to hear and understand and believe the truth about Jesus, not just when they hear us talk about him. They, they believe and understand when they hear us talk about him and watch us love and serve one another joyfully because Jesus has changed us from the inside. That's what Jesus told his disciples. He said, they'll know you're my followers by your love for one another. God forms us into a community so that we can be a light to the world around us and help them to know who he is. God formed the church so that we can join him in the work of making his glory known in all the world. The church exists for mission. So what is a church? Well, after looking at this passage, maybe we can take a first try at at defining the church. The church is the people of God built on the foundation of Jesus, assembled for the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel to those who don't yet know him. I realize that's a lot. That probably feels like a fire hydrant definition where it's just spraying out at you way too much. Um, And we're gonna talk more about this and what it looks like in day-to-day life in the coming weeks. But I think we have plenty today to take home and think about in terms of how that impacts our lives for this coming week. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you have rescued us, that you've taken us who had not received mercy and have shown us mercy. Thank you that you have, have taken us who were not a people and that you've made us a people. Thank you for making us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for your own possession. And I pray that as we seek to live as your church, that we would live lives built on the foundation of Jesus. I pray that we would live lives that are deeply connected with one another in community. I pray that we would live lives that are intentionally lived on mission to share about your excellency with the world around us. God, help us to know you more and love you more and trust you more each day. In Jesus' name, amen.